Welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. This podcast explores investment strategies, economics, personal finance, and stock analysis. It features real conversations and analysis to inform, educate, and entertain. Note that nothing in this podcast is investment advice, and it is for entertainment and discussion purposes only. Do your own due diligence before making any investment. Now, on to the show. Today, I'm talking with Scott Reardon. Scott is a value investor who runs the Dakota Value Funds. The fund operates both a deep value quantitative strategy and a fundamental strategy focusing on buying high-quality businesses when they're available at strong valuations. Additionally, Scott is a best-selling novelist who wrote the Dark Continent Thriller series and Bonfire of the Beast. Welcome to the podcast, Scott. Thank you. I'm really excited to be on. Yeah, I'm happy to have you here today. So, um, how'd you first get interested in investing? You know, the first thing I ever did in investing is my dad gave me a little bit of money and said I could invest it however I want. And this is in 1998, 1999. And I knew there was a bubble in a lot of these stocks. And so I started buying really cheap stocks. And I got into, I would go through the newspaper and just look at what traded at the lowest PE. And I would get interested in that stuff. And so I don't know, I always had a bias towards just the absolute cheapest stuff. And so I got into it through that. I just started putting the money in that. And I thought, well, if the market ever crashes or whatever, I'll be fine. And I wasn't fine. I actually lost a decent amount of money, even in those. But that was sort of the first, that was the first time I started investing. But I was always kind of interested in business, you know, where it was, I, what I viewed as business, where my dad did venture capital really on his own. And I just always thought there was something so cool about taking your own money and putting it into something and just doing it on your own and, and hopefully building it into something that is really accomplished. That's awesome. So how'd you know it was a bubble? Like That seems like a lot of awareness at a young age. Well, it was just everything was trading at such an expensive price. And there was stuff in the media about how a lot of these stocks had no revenues and were trading at huge multiples. So it was just... It just seemed like there was likely something bad would happen. Yeah, very, very prescient. Back then, I was interested in the market, and I always thought, well, maybe this seems crazy, but maybe these people know something I don't, or maybe, yeah, I was, I was always a little ambivalent about it. Then I read Graham around 2000, and that's what made me think it was a bubble. But yeah, that's really cool that you realized that ahead of time. Well, I mean, don't give me too much credit. <laughs> I just, I'd read stuff in the media and sort of internalized that, and Nothing I did shielded me from significant losses. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. I always thought something similar when I started that low valuations would actually provide safety. Like you think margin of safety, there's safety there. It's not always the case. Is that how you started? Was your margin of safety shielding against overvaluation where you're just trying to deal with the risks by getting a low multiple or were you focused immediately on business risk, high quality business? Early on, I thought that valuation protected you from risk and that's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, a lot of that came from actually the early 2000s. Like I saw the internet bubble implode, but then these kind of cheap value stocks did okay. And I thought, oh, well, this is how you prevent losses. And then that never happened again. <laughs> I sort of drifted away from the really, really cheap stuff just because it got very hard to analyze. It was just very hard to figure out. And gotcha. all these things that people would talk about, well, here's the liquidation value. It's only, it's trading 
so close to liquidation value. So you're safe. It's protecting you on the downside. That never came to pass. Yeah, same. Ever. It would always <laughs> go below that. <laughs> yeah, it turns out that that's not a, a concrete number. Like When I started, I always thought there's this intrinsic value. And if it goes below that, it's just an aberration. And as long as you know the intrinsic value, you're fine. And it'll eventually always drift back up to that. Yeah, it turns out intrinsic value is a tough thing to figure out. It is a tough thing to figure out. Yeah. So that was your initial foray into investing. So after that, it looks like you got a law degree from Northwestern and you were going to pursue that as a career. So I'm kind of curious why you picked finance after kind of setting yourself up for a law degree or a law career. Well, you know, what happened is I graduated in 2002 in a recession and it was just really hard to get a job. You know, I really was always interested in writing and I was very interested in investing and I couldn't figure out a way to get, you know, I wound up making a movie. I made my first feature film um, after I graduated college. And then I was sort of trying to get a job the whole time and just, I didn't really like the stuff that I was finding. I just didn't think it was putting me on a good path. So I thought, you know, look, if I can't get on a good track, let me at least get a law degree. So I have that. And so I wound up getting the law degree. And basically I only worked at a firm for two years just to, for the money. I thought a law degree would be a little bit more useful than it's turned out to be, but I just thought it would be just a good way to put myself on a sort of a higher track. And it, it actually wound up to be the case. So I, I worked at a really good law firm. And then I, because I was at a good law firm, these guys, these two guys who ran funds, Chuck Gilman and Ken Schubenstein, were looking for an attorney who wanted to leave to work with them on running proxy battles. And so I wound up, they got me a fellowship at Columbia Business School in the value investing program for a year. And then I wound up working for them. So it worked out. It was a little bit of a circuitous route, but I really, I had no intention of ever being a litigator or anything like that. Gotcha. Gotcha. That's pretty cool. So you went to the Columbia Value Investing Program. So you probably met some of the greats over there, like Greenwald and Greenblatt. So I actually worked remotely for Ken. Oh, and, cool. And, and so I was in New York at the time and Chuck, his partner, was in LA and they said, you can either work in New York or LA. And I knew I wanted to do something entrepreneurial and it was very hard to do that in New York, given how expensive it was. Mm-hmm. And LA, believe it or not, back then, LA was actually cheap compared to New York. Wow. So when my wife and I, so she was my girlfriend then, when we left New York, we moved into basically a guest house in LA, which was really nice. And it was much cheaper than the one bedroom that we were renting. And so we were just like, gosh, we're rich. We <laughs> felt so wealthy. It was amazing. And then, then things got crazy in LA real estate. When we left, they were tearing down all these houses. We lived in Brentwood and they were tearing down all these houses. There were probably 10 houses being torn down on our street. And the average listing price for the house that they were going to build was $6 million. Jeez. It, it was crazy. The, the neighborhood was one where it was Brentwood Flats and it was a, a normal middle-class neighborhood and it's just it gentrified in 10 years. Yeah, it seems like California has really turned into like the middle class has pretty much disappeared. Am I right in thinking that that it's you're either super rich or you know you're on the outskirts? I don't know how you could live in Los Angeles proper if you're not making more than I don't know five hundred thousand dollars a year. Wow, 
everyone I know who lives there is makes a lot of money and that's the only way to do it. Everyone else has left. Gotcha. Yeah. And Which I guess unfortunate. even, even if you were middle-class there and you owned one of those homes and it exploded in value, I would probably just cash that out and go live somewhere else. That's how well, I would probably approach it. Well, it's funny. My wife and I used to laugh because some of the people had clearly been in the neighborhood a long time. There were two houses where the people had monster trucks parked outside the house and clearly they'd been living there for a long time and i guess a lot of them were cashing out Uh oh that's a recipe for disaster (laughs) yeah there was also a little bit of we think there was a little bit of chinese money parked in the neighborhood because when we moved in there was a house that was empty and you could hear the smoke alarm chirping and when we left 10 years later the house was still empty and the smoke alarm was still chirping. And we were always like someone in China or some other places just parking money in this thing. Yeah, that's a major thesis about a lot of the real estate bubbles we've seen around the world where they can't exactly park directly into financial assets. So they are using real estate as a means to kind of get their money out of the country. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's uh, possible. That's what was going on. So you mentioned that you did low PEs early on. So how did you start out with with your investing process? So what strategies did you try out first? And then how did that evolve over time? Well, you know, it's funny. I sort of, you know, talking about not evolving much as a person, I guess. I started out being a deep value quant, just like Ben Graham ended his career, where I do a lot of back testing and was running strategies where basically we we're just trying to buy the cheapest stocks in terms of EV to EBIT. And from there, I actually still think that strategy works. I think that's a, a really solid strategy. The problem is that it's very cyclical. And, it, and when it goes out of favor, it goes way out of favor. And so it's just something that I think in terms of running money, it can be a tricky strategy. But it's it's a very robust strategy over over virtually any decade other than the last one. It's a strategy that produces significant alpha. I, I just don't think it's the strategy that necessarily produces the most alpha. And I wasn't sure it's the one that produces the most alpha and is the most high percentage. So I evolved a bit from that to doing what I do now, where we're trying to buy high percentage businesses, not necessarily high quality businesses with high ROEs, but just high percentage, where we think the business is, has a huge amount of staying power and is very hard to displace. And you know, often operates in sort of a privileged place in the ecosystem. But then we're trying to get it at a really cheap multiple, such that we think if we owned it for the next, you know, five to 10 years, we'd make 20% a year on it, at least. Awesome. Yeah. So that is interesting what you mentioned about quantitative value strategies. It does seem like that deep value kind of thing It does go through those phases. So it had a phase like that over the last 10 years. It kind of looked like that in the 90s where it had a tough period of time. And then it seems to go in waves. Like it has these explosive returns in some periods, like the 2000s. And then it'll just have these kind of muted returns for a while that don't exactly keep up with the market. What do you think drives that flow to deep value? I've never been able to figure it out ever. I've searched high and low to the point I've just given up <laughs> on figuring it out. It does help when those stocks get cheap in absolute terms. If you look at those at that sort of the value decile, the cheapest 10% of the market in 2000, 
2005 and 2006 and 2007, those stocks were objectively no longer cheap. Mm -hmm. But it kept they, working. Well, it, it worked in 2005 and then it started to peter out in 2006. And then by 2007, a lot of value investors had some of the worst drawdowns mm -hmm. of anybody when 2008 came and 2009. I suspect that was because those stocks had gotten you know, really fairly valued or richly valued compared to where they're normally trading. And I think if you look at them in an absolute basis, they just weren't that cheap. That's another thing that I think has changed, just looking at absolute value and just trying to figure out when is something trading at a price that'll allow you to, to earn an above market return. That's very hard. Gotcha. Yeah. And it does seem kind of like people crowd into the strategy. Maybe that's a sign that it's becoming a little bit, that the expensive nature of the value stock, an indication that that's happening is that everybody sees values working, everybody crowds into the trade, and then those stocks become a little bit overvalued. I, I guess maybe that's a reason that that's happening. Well, it's interesting because 2000 to 2007 was basically the golden age of value investing. Yeah. There were so many funds that got created in that time period. And that was when so many of these famous value investors that we all follow today, that was their moment. Yeah. And that was when a lot of these people were, you know, like Michael Burry, he was a doctor and then he became a value investor. Ken Schubenstein, the guy I worked for, he was a doctor. He was an orthopedic surgeon and he always <laughs> loved investing. He was obsessed with investing and then he wound up launching a fund, I think in 2001. And so there were just a lot of people, I don't know how crowded it got, but it's, it was certainly more crowded than it is now by a factor of 10. Yeah. Yeah. And that probably makes those stocks, you know, more richly valued than they should be. Yeah, you'd think so. But then the last 10 years has been just a disaster. I, I look at all these people who I admire and their careers are on the rocks. Yeah. And then you compare like the 20 year track record to maybe like an ETF of like a value ETF or something, often they get below that. So it's kind of like, then what was, what was really that a wonderful performance like in the two thousands or are they actually underperforming the benchmark or are they just kind of like a coiled spring ready to explode in the next 10 years? I don't know. Yeah. My hope is that they're a coiled spring, but we'll see. We shall see. So you run both strategies. So my understanding is that Dakota has a quantitative deep value strategy, and then you do the more qualitative work on a fundamental strategy. So do you want to talk a little bit about those two strategies and how you implement them? So the quant strategy, the, the deep value quant strategy is just buying stocks in the cheapest 10% of the market. And it just basically rebalances every year and it does nothing else. It's very simple. The algorithm is very simple. And that's enterprise multiples that you use there? Yeah, yeah, that's what we use. And, and But we think it's very important to keep it as simple as possible. One thing, when I started doing a lot of backtesting, I noticed that the more factors you add to a model, it very quickly starts to get curve fit and data mined. It's shocking how fast it happens. So anytime I come across somebody who's like, oh, we have a five-factor model, I'm always like, that's a lot, actually. <laughs> For me, I found that usually it's one or two things that really move the needle. And once you start monkeying around with other things, in my experience, the model completely fell apart. And I, I don't see a lot of people acknowledging that. In fact, the opposite, there's a lot of value quants have this thing where they get obsessed with adding a momentum overlay 
to their strategy where they think they can lower the drawdowns. And my theory is that it completely destroys the strategy. Interesting. Yeah, I did. I went through that with backtesting. So I had a backtest and it used a valuation ratio and that worked. Oh, well, let's add it to equity ratios to that. Let's add a number of quarters where they made money. Let's add some specific industries here. And the minute I put real money into it, lo and behold, it stopped working. <laughs> so I think you're right. I think that the more things you throw at it, you're basically just kind of data mining something that goes way back. That's my suspicion, but I, you know, I've, I've been wrong on a lot of things. I think you're right. So the momentum thing, so that's pretty interesting. So why don't you think that works? Like taking a value portfolio and then kind of waiting for those value stocks to get above a moving average. Why doesn't that work the way people think it should? I think you're just adding too many factors to it. I, I just don't think you can get both. I, I don't think you can have your cake and eat it too. You're just trying to extract too much out of historical data. And it just it just won't won't work going forward because you're just I do think they are just without meaning to they're they're basically fitting the curve of the historical data mm -hmm. and they're getting just too close to that instead of just trying to get something directionally right and approximately right they're just being a little bit too greedy and trying to get a little bit too much and extract a little bit too much out of the world and it just won't work yeah I mean it seems like the holy grail there to be able to on this bottom tick of value investment and know when it's going to start to turn. I mean, almost inevitably, whenever I buy a stock on a value basis, I'm never bottom ticking it, but I, I've accepted that that's just something that's impossible to do. Yeah. Yeah. So the quant thing is what kind of got me into the other strategy. I'm a member of Value Investors Club. I've always been interested in how people who are fundamental investors think. And I started out as one and I just wanted to keep my options open. And I noticed I'd post ideas on there and the people on there are very smart and they'd poke holes in it. And I think, wow, these people really do know something. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, So a lot of quants are only focused on quant stuff and they think everything else is irrational, which is how I was. And I realized that that really wasn't the case and that, there was a, that the numbers didn't capture the entirety of reality and that there was something else going on. And I wound up reading Robert Vinal's investor letters I don't have a similar strategy to him at all, but he, I think without meaning to, thinks in a very quantish way where he has basically five things he looks for in an investment. And he's almost treating it like an algorithm where he's executing this algorithm, except it's on qualitative things. And as soon as I saw that, it just, it sparked something mm. in my mind where I was like, this is exactly what I've always wanted to do. Something where it's, you're not just looking at the numbers. It's not just quant. You're looking at qualitative factors, but you're doing it in a, in a systematic, disciplined way, as opposed to just being airy-fairy and sort of like, oh, I, you know, this is cheap and now's the time to buy it and all that. I was never interested in that. I just wanted to do it in a disciplined way where you put your head down and own it for three years or five years and just you know, sit on your ass. And when I saw him doing that, I thought, this is very interesting. And I created a, that's when I started creating a database of great investors so I could start looking at what they were doing. And that, that started me creating my own sort of little algorithm of what I should look for in a stock. And that led to the fundamental strategy where we buy things. We basically only buy things that have significant market share and preferably have a dominant market share position where they're the number one or number two position in a market. And then we're looking for things with big payoffs where, you know, we're, we're buying something where it's the, 
number one or number two, say telecom provider in a market, and it's priced where we think it, it's worth at least 100% more than where it's trading. Gotcha. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. I went through a similar transition there where um, I feel like when you're doing more of the quantitative deep value stuff, you start to think in terms of like, well, no one can know anything about the actual quality of a business. But then you can see it with your eyes. You can see really good businesses that have solid moats, I think. And that was the, the struggle for me is like, I started to say, well, you know, Microsoft isn't the same as this company. And, you know, th there is quality in plain sight that you can see. That's exactly how I felt. There's something not captured. People have all this data on this and that. I just started to distrust the data. Mm -hmm. I just wasn't sure that I think you can make the data say anything you want at the end of the day. And I just felt like people were doing that. And there's just, there's something about, about reality that defies historical data or, or any of that. And the fact that all these smart people throughout history believed in, not all of them, but a significant proportion of them believed in investing in more higher quality businesses or businesses with staying power or inevitables, things like that. And I just thought there's something to that. And you yeah. can just tell, you can tell, you can tell a tanker business is not as high percentage as, as Apple. It, it just isn't. You can just, you can see it with your own two eyes. It's, and, and there's a hundred other businesses that are far and not a hundred. There's almost all businesses are higher percentage than oil tankers and stuff like that. But, <laughs> but I agree. It's the same thing. You can see it with your own two eyes. that something else is going on. Yeah, totally agree. So you mentioned you went back and looked at some great investors and looked at the track record. So who are some of those investors and what are some of the key lessons that you got from them? I'd say the, the, some of the key lessons I got. So I found about 70 investors where I could verify their track record. Hmm. And, and basically I defined it as anyone who's running a substantial amount of money over 20 years or more. So two or three market cycles, and they had to have at least two and a half percent alpha. Mm -hmm. And so the first thing that jumped out is that two thirds of these guys are value investors. And when you look at the others, the other third, they're all over the place. Some of them are macro. Uh, some of them are growth. Some of them are traders. It's all over the place. There's really not a, no pattern to it that I could see. Yeah. It's not but a replicable process. At, le at least not looking at it from a global level. Gotcha. But when you go over to the value investors, they kind of fall into two camps. And one camp I think is very much like your strategy where they're buying high percentage businesses, good businesses, and they're not looking for quite as big an undervaluation. And then you have, and then this shocked me, half the value people. So one third of all the, the 70 great investors I found, one third of the total sample were deep value investors buying really cheap stocks, stuff at, you know, I would consider anything that trades below seven to 10 times earnings to be a deep value stock. Yeah. And that's, that's where they were. And, and often buying the interesting thing with the deep value people is that they were buying sometimes lower quality businesses, but I just didn't notice a lot of investing in garbage businesses mm. or cigar butts. Even, yeah. even though they're a deep value, the knock on it, people say that with a lot of deep value investing is that you're investing in cigar butts. I didn't find that generally, and I, I don't know for sure, but I didn't find that generally they were investing in cigar butts. They were investing in good businesses and businesses with staying power. They were just very cheap. 
Yeah, I read an article once that uh, Walter Schloss wrote in like Forbes, and he was talking about some stocks he was buying that were at book value. So they were at book value, that's deep value. But then he was talking about, oh, this business generates a lot of free cash flow and that type of thing. So yeah, I don't think he was buying the straight garbage like people think. I think he was actually, they were actually pretty decent businesses that were at extraordinarily cheap valuations. That's my suspicion too. That, that said, I with him, I never, I haven't gotten a lot of concrete examples of stuff he bought. Yeah, but, I'll have to find it. It was some article in like 1984 or something that he was talking, where he was talking about businesses he was buying, the Forbes. You asked me about for some examples of investors, and one that comes to mind would be the Chandler brothers, who compounded capital at 35% a year for 20 years. Wow. Who were they? I've never even heard of the Chandler brothers. Who, who well, are they? They did it on their own money. Okay. With their own money. They're from New Zealand. Their parents had a, a retail shop. And they sold it. And basically the brothers inherited $10 million. And they wound up, they put all the money in Hong Kong real estate after Hong Kong real estate had crashed in the 80s. And they wound up making four times their money. And then they took that and they started going around the world and investing in basically these crown jewel assets. And they get them at two or three times earnings. They're very interesting. They sort of take a lot of the principles that I'm talking about, and they did it on steroids, where they'd go and buy, for example, they bought a dominant telecom firm in Brazil. Okay. And they had to lobby the government to allow them to buy into it. But it was a business that's not going anywhere. Is This is the, uh, I think they invested in it in the 90s, if I'm not mistaken. So when telecom is absolutely taking off, and they got it at some dirt cheap valuation. And so they were really trying to buy stuff just at, at bombed out valuations, but trying to buy the best businesses in a country. So they got an entrenched telecom company with that, and that's clearly a huge moat. And then they got it at a deep value price, basically. Yeah, the dominant telecom business. And then they did the same, something similar in South Korea. And then in 2003, they did it in Japan after there was a, you know, all the, all these banks. Japanese banks were having issues in 2000 to 2003. They they went in and correctly guessed that the government would lower interest rates and stimulate the economy, wouldn't let the banks fail. And they wound up buying these things at three times earnings, three times normalized earnings. The banks wow. were, were losing money. And then they wound up on one of the banks, they made, I don't know, three or four times their money. Wow. Why are these guys not more famous? It sounds like uh, some of the best investors of all time. They're very good. I, I've got to say, though, they really sort of hit the variance pretty hard. They're, they'll put, they'll have almost all their money in two stocks, three stocks, or even one stock. I do think there is a big element of luck in their returns. The fact that they didn't hit something where the government seized mm. their capital or something like that. I think they deserve to be docked for that, even though the results are incredible. Were they making really concentrated bets in these companies or like hugely? Oh, okay. oh, hugely. I, I think they at one point put third of their net worth, maybe half their net worth in Gazprom. Jeez. Yeah. Well, that so hasn't it, gone so well lately for investors. No. Well, they yeah. did it back in the 90s. Yeah, yeah. When you could buy it on pennies on the dollar. Right. So they were doing stuff like that. So they're very interesting, but I suspect they're not that well known just because they didn't manage outside capital, but they're billionaires now. So you you do the math on on turning uh, 10 or 20 million and you compound that at 
they've become billionaires and you can actually verify it based on their public holdings in companies today. These guys are legitimate billionaires. Wow. And, they, and they must be on the Forbes list then. They're not American, but I think they're, they're each worth 2 billion. Wow. That's incredible. I don't think they're on the Forbes list. Oh, I'm, not okay. aware. I'm not aware of that, but I've never checked. Any other great investors that might be like a little unknown like them that you looked at? Well, there's a guy, uh, Bill Stewart, who's very interesting. Stewart is actually a growth investor. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about him is I, I've never come across anyone who is so obsessed with predictability. So all of his returns, he had great returns. He outperformed the market by, uh, I think it was 5% a year in the, after fees for 30 years or something like that. Wow. And he was just, all he talked about in interviews was the predictability of earnings and always, always wanted that even more so than Buffett. And what was so interesting about him is that basically he viewed himself as he viewed all the returns in the portfolio as coming from earnings growth. So basically in order for him to make 15% a year, which is what he made, he, the earnings had to grow 15% a year in his companies and he had to buy it at a reasonable valuation. And basically if he bought it a, a reasonable valuation, one which would stick. And if he was just extremely certain that they would grow their earnings 15% a year or you know, maybe 10% a year if he's getting it a little bit cheap, that he would hit his target of making 15% a year. And, and I was just fascinated by that. That was what really first turned the light on for me in about the importance of finding high percentage businesses with staying power when something's predictable, that is a sign of strength. And I'd never realized that. As a deep value person, that was very foreign to me. Yeah, I think that is extremely important. And just to project your returns, like how do you know, you know what your IRR is going to be over like a 10-year period if you don't have any visibility into how you can predict where earnings are going to go? And you can really only do that with a super stable business like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So- you also, you wrote a pretty interesting article. So you talked about, you may not like technology, but technology likes you. I read this article. I thought it was really cool. You talked about how basically throughout human history, we're going in a different direction now, <laughs> but you talked about how in human history. Oh shit. Um, what did I write? This is, a, this is an old article. That's what's going through my head right now. Yeah. It was all about how basically throughout human history, technology has been focused on changing the outside world. And then you basically said that now we're entering an era where technology will begin to change human beings themselves. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was a super interesting concept if you want to talk a little bit about that. Uh, that's why, so I wrote a, a thriller series called The Dark Continent. Uh, that's the name of the series. And basically it, it was in part inspired by Frankenstein, the novel. So the mm -hmm. novel by Mary Shelley is completely different from the movies, which feature a large green monster. In the novel, Frankenstein is a man. He's a regular guy, but he's basically been created by Dr. Frankenstein. And when Mary Shelley wrote that book, it was there were all these changes happening in the world, and it was about people suddenly seizing the forces that had made them mm -hmm. and seizing control of that. And she wrote it against that backdrop. And I was very fascinated by that because I think it's very true today in some ways. But I... I basically, the books are about a stem cell experiment to change the human body. And basically I take it to the darkest place I can, which is very exciting to me as a, as a writer. It's just about, you know, people kind of hitting, hitting the limits of existence and doing just these, 
they're able to use technology to to suddenly express all their will to power and all their ideologies and, and just you know how dark and scary that is so where does it where does it go like you said it goes to the darkest place imaginable where 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 is that oh i just it just goes there kind of philosophically oh okay and, but there's a lot of dark stuff that happens in it but gotcha. thematically it's it's very they're dark books and i think in a in an interesting way and you're trying to turn that into a, a series or a movie was that right like i saw that trailer you made yeah i uh so we're trying to make that as a uh, a tv series and basically i've i've written a script for that i've created a a bible which is kind of a it's like a pitch deck mm-hmm. that you create for a movie or a or a series and we're trying to get that produced that's awesome yeah that's pretty cool. it, it's exciting so how did you get interested in becoming a novelist? So you've written a number of novels. How did that get sparked? And then how did you, you find the time as, as an investor to start writing novels? Was it just in you and it had to come out? I've, just, I've always liked writing. I've always liked books and movies. I was obsessed with that. I remember even in high school, one of my friends had a, uh, a CD from Blockbuster that had all the movies, basically almost all the movies ever made on it. And it would give you reviews of them and rate them. I was just obsessed with this thing. I would, I found alligator from 1980 off this disc (laughs) and, you know, all these obscure horror movies and just got really into it. Instead of doing my homework or anything, I just, (laughs) I'd be just watching all these obscure movies that no one, no one had ever seen, but I just, I'd love that. And I've always loved writing. It's just, it's, it's very hard to make a living at it, but I, I've written and directed uh, two feature films. I acted in some stuff when I was younger. I really liked that. So I, I've always had that creative side. I just also enjoy in, investing. But in terms of finding time, you know, the funny thing is if you're a value investor and you are a- actually committed to the long term, mm-hmm. you're sitting on your ass most of the time. <laughs> So there's not a lot to do. It's not like if company has a bad quarter, I'm just like, oh, well, this just explodes the thesis. It doesn't really (laughs) quite, I mean, occasionally that happens, but it usually doesn't. Yeah. You know, we're betting on a company's historical character. So if they have a bad year, it's not really that big a deal to us most of the time. Sometimes we're we're just dead wrong, but. Yeah. The approach I've taken is to, in those time, that time off, okay, I'll just research expensive companies that for now are out of my league and then maybe someday they'll then the next crash or whatever they'll they'll you know be within a margin of safety and i'll have done the work on them that's kind of my approach yeah i agree it's kind of like it's just a slow process you're just kind of sitting there and waiting yeah and it's also i guess going back to what i was saying about you want to keep your model simple mm-hmm. i feel like with the investing I think a lot of smart people fail because they're trying to do too much. They have too many factors in their model, in their mental model or whatever it is. And you can't get all that right. You can maybe get one or two things kind of right. And that's it. And so I I guess that's all I'm focused on. And I don't know, it's that simplifies it a lot. That makes sense. Yeah. And I, I agree that that's an Achilles heel for a lot of really smart people where They'll start to get into, they want to do cool stuff. They want to do more interesting things. So they start getting into all kinds of wacky stuff, like using extreme leverage or options or trying to, you know, trying to do all sorts of like high level stuff and ends up probably hurting their performance in the long run. There's no one on Twitter who likes to 
poke fun at those people more than you. <laughs> in, in fact, in fact, I've seen some of your some of your <laughs> your tweets where you're you're sort of creating your own meme where I realize I'm the butt of what you're making fun of and i'll, oh, I'll no. start i'll start laughing i love it no it's great i, I actually think it's very powerful you know like you you had something one of my favorite ones that you put up was you had one of pennywise the clown and he's in, down in the sewer and, and you're in and, and the, the title was chinese stocks yeah and, it, and basically pennywise is saying we've got great businesses at cheap prices and i was laughing because i have 20 percent of my fund in china Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, that was more. A lot of times those memes are to remind myself. So like I was looking at some Chinese stocks and I'm like, hey, what am I doing? <laughs> That's where I was at. <laughs> well, a couple of months later, I wound up buying some puts on my holdings. Okay. Just, just some catastrophe insurance. Yeah. But your meme helped me sort of sober <laughs> me up a little bit. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. So going back to stocks a little bit. So I know that with your fundamental strategy, you do 13 to 20 positions. So why that position sizing? Are they I mean, equally I, weighted also? It's something I was wondering about. For the quant strategy, we equally weight. For the fundamental strategy, we don't. Gotcha. Uh, so we concentrate and I don't know, usually there's about five things, five to seven things that are really interesting at a given point in time. I don't even know if that's really that concentrated or not. Excuse me, if you look at the industry as a whole, it's the lack of concentration is really kind of surprising. And in looking at the great investors, I didn't see, I don't think any of them were running portfolios where they held 50 stocks. Mm -hmm. Maybe the only one was John Templeton, where, where he would own a lot of stocks. But I don't think anyone else held that number. I think most of them held 10 to 20 stocks. Yeah. Yeah. And it's hard to follow more than. 20 stocks. Like, how are you possibly following 50 companies? It's a nightmare. Yeah. It's really kind of a nightmare. That said, when you concentrate, if you're only holding five or six things, you know, that's, that to me just seems a little scary. I really consider myself kind of a know nothing at the end of the day. And I don't want to bank. I don't want to have to be right about anything. So that is probably fine. But the, I would imagine the tracking error on that portfolio would be huge. And would just really scare the hell out of your clients. Yeah, even Greenblatt said that. He said that you know he was running an ultra concentrated portfolio like that, and he said his clients couldn't handle it, and then that's why he took the fund ultimately private to manage his own capital in the mid nineties. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, he talked about it. I saw him on like a Google interview or something, and he was talking about well, the downside of a super concentrated special situation strategy is that. You know, out of the blue, you'll lose twenty percent of your portfolio, and you have to call your and you have to talk to your clients and explain that everything's actually okay and it's not a big deal. But it's way too hard to for most people to handle, and that's in the greatest track record of all time. So if he's having trouble, imagine how much anyone else would have trouble in it. Yeah, that's horrifying. I mean, considering <laughs> the returns he was getting, yeah, the, the fact that people couldn't stomach that. It, it's really interesting how much people just will not tolerate underperformance. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just comes from a lack of trust where they're just, they don't really understand your strategy that well, and they're not really locked in with you over the yeah. long run. And so when there's a big underperformance, they're sort of wondering, is this really what I signed up for? And, and is this the sign of something worse? I think it, it does stem from just this kind of that principal agent mismatch. 
Yeah. And no one's going to sit down with you as a client and say like, well, here's the deal. I'm going to, I'm performance chasing and <laughs> I'm going to get freaked out at the next fall down. And, you know, no one says that everyone's coming to you and saying, Hey, I'm a disciplined long-term investor. But then when things hit the fan, it's a, it's a different story. Yeah. I've noticed that even with my own family, we all have over the years developed slightly different investing styles. Mm-hmm. And we helped manage my parents' retirement money. And we put the money in a fund that suffered a big drawdown last year. So the market was down 20% and this fund was down 30%. Oh, wow. And, and it was sort of like, it just cast a pall over the whole thing. And it was because we all disagreed. It was because we all had different strategies where suddenly it became this very bad thing. Whereas if we were all united on the firm's, on the fund's strategy and all, all believed in it as opposed to saying, ah, oh, it's okay, fine. Well, some people like this, we'll go along with it. It, it would have been fine because what happened is the fund had some exposure to Russia. Oh. And that's why they had the excess drawdown. But it's the fund, it's Armor Capital. They're, one, in my opinion, one of the best international investors out there. And they have they had up until that point, one of the best track records and still have a good track record despite mm-hmm. the big loss. But it was funny because you had a bunch of people with with a slight, who weren't completely united on strategy, it suddenly became this this terrible thing where it was like, we don't, we're not sure we trust them. And, and I guess I realized the degree to which clients go through the same thing where they're answering to committees and people who don't view it the exact same way they do. And as a result, you can't engage in long-term thinking. Mm. You, you can only engage in this sort of, you know, trying to minimize embarrassment. Yeah. Yeah. And volatility is stressful too. When you're talking about losing real money, it's, it's a stressful event. Yeah, it is. Um, that's why I, I often think that the best approach, I think for most investors is something super low volatility. Like I think most people would be better off with like a five to 6% return that's steady versus like trying to shoot for the stars. Because I think a lot of it, like if you look at, if you ever look at those charts of like the average investor return, your average investor gets like 1%. Basically, because they're going for the high octane strategies, you know, when when we're in bull markets and then they get super defensive at the lows. And I think like my opinion is most people would probably be better off with just something slow and steady. Probably. Or an index. Well, even the index is pretty wild. Like, you know, you're going to have some nasty bear markets here and there, but like just something like I think most people compared to what most investors experience would be better off with like 60% bonds. 40% 40% stock, something like that versus oh, interesting. like the wild going on the wild roller coaster ride. Cause it's yeah. like a visceral experience when you're losing half of your money. It, it and is. And it, it's also when you add sort of the tracking error of an individual manager to mm-hmm. the volatility, I feel mm-hmm. like it, it really, it can really create some bad results. Yeah. Yeah. Especially if you're down more than the market. Like a lot of people will be like, well, it's one thing if you're down 50% and everybody else is down 50%, but if you're down, you know, 40% and everybody else is down 10%, that's like another, another story. Yeah. It's interesting. I've met, well, I went to the Berkshire annual meeting this year and I ran into two guys who used to run funds and have now left public market stuff and are doing stuff in private markets. One of them is doing VC stuff. Another one was doing private equity. And they're both like, my life has gotten so much better. <laughs> I don't I don't miss it at all. And I think part of that is just the fact that value has done so poorly that it's just nice to take the pain off. But also 
not having to be marked to market every day, they found to be a huge, just a, a huge weight lifted off their, off their back. Yeah. Especially now when someone can just log on and see the results every second, it's probably, we were probably better off when we just got a statement every quarter. <laughs> I agree. I try not to check the prices of the stuff I own very much. That's good. That's good. I try to as well. I'm not always successful. (laughs) I wish I could just have someone else just log in and just make sure everything's normal. No money's been taken out of the account or anything. It's just all fine. And I don't have to log in. That's my dream. Yeah. And I could just, I could just check it, you know, once or twice a quarter. Gotcha. Gotcha. So before we wrap up here, um, is there anything you'd like to add for the listeners? I don't know about, about, uh, anything specific. Anything you want to add? Anything you want to throw out there for the listeners? You know, I would say with the study I did of, of, of great investors, one thing that really jumped out at me was that they look for things with big payoffs. And, you know, Stanley Druckenmiller has said that if you look at all the great investors, they all have one thing in common. They do large concentrated bets. He's right on that. But I, I guess I, I view it differently. I view it as they, they look for things with big payoffs. And when something didn't offer a big payoff, I think a lot of them just didn't bother with it. Hmm. As opposed to trying to short it, which never works or anything like that. They just seem to kind of avoid those things and just gravitate towards where the opportunity is. And I would say that's something that has a lot of applicability in markets and in life. If you focus on things where personally it has a big payoff for you, I think that can lead to some really good, significant things for you. And what are the best places for people to reach you and and learn about you? Uh, My website, dakotavalue.com. Cool. All right. Well, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Great to see you again, VSG. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more information, please go to securityanalysis.org. Subscribers to the website get early ad-free access to podcast episodes in addition to weekly in-depth profiles of companies.